This is Mouth Media Network, the business of being heard. Hi, I'm Doreen Block, Executive Director of the Makeup Museum, and to me, it's a matter of legacy. Every civilization from prehistoric to contemporary times has a beauty culture or dabbled in the application of cosmetics. I'm Kelly Kovac, founder of Beauty Matter. The value of heritage, history, and legacy is sometimes overlooked or viewed at as a liability. So much of the current hyper-connected beauty landscape is focused on newer, faster, better, that what came before is sometimes tossed aside or dismissed at as not relevant. But for others, beauty history is a treasure trove of inspiration just waiting to be discovered. Many of us have passion projects, and for Doreen Bloch, the executive director of the Makeup Museum, documenting, archiving, sharing, and paying tribute to the thousands of years of beauty history was an idea that she made a reality. So Doreen, it is first of all so nice to meet you. I don't think we've ever met in person, although I'm very aware of all the work you're doing. So we'll have to fix that sort of on the other side of COVID. But thanks for taking the time to chat. I really appreciate it. I know everyone's schedules are kind of crazy these days. Thank you so much, Kelly. It's really an honor to be able to chat with you about the backstory of the Makeup Museum. Yeah, you know, you're also the founder and CEO of Poshly. Not that I have to tell you that, but for everyone listening. Doreen's also the founder and CEO of Poshly, which is a beauty data company that you launched almost a decade ago. So that in and of itself could probably be its own conversation. But for today, we are going to focus on your role as the executive director of the Makeup Museum and sort of the launch of it, which seems to me like it must have been a passion project come to life. So I'm really dying to know the backstory of how the Makeup Museum came to be. Yes, it's been an epic journey so far. Epic also in the sense that unlike with a company where you kind of think about a company journey over maybe 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, but with a museum, it's like a hundred years, right? So we're really thinking about how do we build the foundation of an organization that is going to exceed our lifetimes as founders. And so it's been really epic at the start, but we think of it as such a long journey that we're going to be walking and transitioning then, of course, to future contributors. Yeah. So how did it all come to be? Was this something that you had envisioned? And, you know, it's kind of on one level sort of thinking about it, it's kind of shocking that something doesn't exist. I know Fragrance House, for example, has like the world's largest collection, Drom, which was privately held, had the world's, the family had the world's largest collection of perfume bottles. But there isn't sort of an industry-wide sort of way of archiving all of this. Right. And that's exactly that light bulb that went off in my mind after having worked in the cosmetics industry for almost a decade. And, you know, very specifically to tell you the backstory, I was six months postpartum with my son and driving out of a pediatrician appointment when that's the light bulb that went off was, wait a second, why is there no beauty museum? Like, how is there not an institution that focuses on the history of cosmetics? And so given that I work with 
you know, so many executives and brands within the space, I started reaching out just to kind of scratch my own curiosity around whether something like this had ever been done. To your point, I had been, uh, for example, this was in 2017, I believe, to the Fragrance Museum in Paris, which was mm -hmm. incredible. And yet when I was searching on Google, there wasn't anything like that done for beauty broadly. And so after I spoke with different contacts in the space, the feedback was pretty unanimous. Doreen, you're an entrepreneur, go do it. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Don't you love when people create more work for you? Oh, yes. <laughs> that has definitely been the case with Makeup Museum. Way more work than I ever expected to. <laughs> but I mean, the outcome has just been so incredible. More than I ever expected, when we announced that we would be bringing the Makeup Museum to life, this was November of 2019, there was just such global enthusiasm and at a level that I never could have expected. I mean, multiple editions of Vogue all around the world talking about the excitement for just the prospect of what a museum dedicated to makeup would look like. There's a lot of other people to credit in this. My very first call when I was driving out of that pediatrician appointment was to Caitlin Collins, who is a longtime friend in the industry. She was the former editor of Makeup.com, and she was one of the first people to help me unpack what this could look like, such a key contributor to how we were able to build out the Makeup Museum, how we were able to bring on corporate underwriters to help fund the first exhibition. And then also through the grapevine of the network, I connected with Rachel Goodwin, who is one of the most incredible makeup artists in the world. She works with such amazing women, you know, Emma Stone, January Jones, many, many others. And Rachel has just been such a creative force behind uh, the Makeup Museum and helping us unpack from an artistry perspective the importance and the legacy of what we're building. So those are my two co-founders in this venture and just so many other supporters all throughout the journey. Yeah, I mean, I can attest to the interest because obviously we felt we had to cover it because it was such a cool story. And the open rates on the articles that we wrote were like kind of through the roof. So it was cool to kind of see the interest from the industry for something that is really important for all of us, I think. But, you know, the first installation for the museum is Pink Jungle, 1950s Makeup in America. Why did you choose this moment in beauty history as the starting place? I guess intuitively, maybe you would have thought you'd start at the beginning. But it's an interesting, a really interesting choice because it's very, it's very specific. Yes. So, Kelly, that's such a great question. And we were very methodical about it, actually. As you mentioned, my background is in beauty data. And so whenever there is kind of a mammoth question of like, where should we begin? My instinct is always to turn to the data and to the community. And so we reached out to our panel of community members that we were building up, you know, and just asked people, you know, if there was a museum dedicated to beauty, what would you want to see first? And in fact, we even had ideas around doing artist retrospectives or themes like the history of glitter, right? I mean, there's just mm -hmm. so much. There are literally endless themes that you can explore through the Makeup Museum. And the decade approach was the one that resonated most for people for the debut exhibition. And it actually came down to the 1980s or the 1950s. Interesting. <laughs> and so then we took it back to our advisory board, you know, including uh, the co-founders. And when we started diving more into the content, we felt that the 1950s was such an 
important and exciting moment for the beauty industry that almost needed a modern reminder. It felt like the right moment to think back to what things were like 70 years ago in the context of racial injustice, which we never could have imagined, you know, how important that topic became ultimately Mm -hmm. in 2020. But we spend a lot of time in the exhibition talking about how women of color were really excluded from the beauty conversation in the 1950s. Yes, of course, there were pockets here and there of brands that were creating products for skin tones that were non-white, but it was, you know, very much outside of the mainstream beauty norm. And Also, because of the level of innovation that was happening in the 1950s, you see, for example, the transition from cake mascara to automatic. That is something putting, you know, what essentially looks like a toothbrush in front of consumers today to show them this is what mascara looked like. It's quite unfathomable to the modern consumer. So we thought that it was a really great decade to explore and just has such interesting touch points and really important themes for a modern audience. Yeah, and your initial underwriters are also sort of kind of support that as well. Because when I saw Erno Laszlo was one of the brands, I was like, of course. You know, first of all, I think what the team over there has done with reinvigorating that brand is amazing because it is a very special heritage brand. And they've kind of loved it back into existence. And like such cool stories. And really the first Dr. Brown that was You know, Dr. Laszlo has innovated things that we now take for granted, cult products, like these quick fixes. So, yeah, it was it was cool to see the brands you brought together. And and, you know, you alluded to this before, this idea of the corporate archives. There are beauty treasures sitting in corporate archives that brands, in a way, they don't know what to do with it. You know, it sits there for historical reference for their uh, marketers and product developers to learn from and, and draw inspiration from. But these items, at least in the States, are never shown to a consumer audience. So to be able to work with Erno Laszlo to bring those items for the first time ever to be shown to the public has just been extraordinary. I mean, to be able to see up close Marilyn Monroe's bottle of skincare cream that actually says for stomach on it because she apparently had an appendix surgery. So he created this tincture and serum directly for her Mm -hmm. belly, you know, um, and to be able to see that level of detail is just extraordinary. Yeah. Another thing that is, aside from just kind of the the huge lift of getting this off the ground was there was a lot of excitement around the opening that was set for May of last year, but COVID had different plans for you and New York City was shut down. I can only imagine the stress you and your team felt, but it really didn't seem like you missed a beat. Can you sort of share a little bit about how you were able to keep the launch alive without being able to open the physical space as planned? Yeah. So as I mentioned, we had announced the opening in November around Thanksgiving. And we announced that tickets would go on sale March 2020. And we actually did start the ticket sales first of March. And we had, you know, just an incredible response for four days. And then everything shut down. And, you know, with the team at the time, there is a, a tremendous amount of complexity. You know, we had already signed sponsorship commitments for a six-month exhibition, already had, you know, the landlord and lease set up. And I have to say, shout out to TF Cornerstone because they were fantastic with us to keep this dream alive. If they had been, as a landlord, 
particular about the lease, we never could have opened. But they really were so generous with us to extend the timing of the lease, you know, until we were able to open, until New York City and state gave the okay. It was really painful in those first few weeks, but all of that in stride in the sense that our team is healthy, you know, we were going to be financially okay. And so I think for us as, it's interesting because Rachel, Caitlin, and myself are all moms. We're very cognizant of the fact that there were bigger issues in the world. And so it was very important for us to just put everything in its right priority that, you know, the Makeup Museum, again, this is not about one year or even, you know, five years or 10 years. This is about a much longer journey. And so, you know, what's a couple months in the grand scheme of things? And so the first thing that we did in those early weeks was say, how can we be a source of joy and inspiration at a time that is so difficult for people and uh, do something that is really honoring our mission around makeup education? And so we started a campaign called Generations of Beauty that was also so lovely and got such incredible global response as well, where we encouraged people to speak with their older family members and loved ones or friends, um, people who had been uh, in their 20s or their teens in the 1950s, so still kind of, you know, exploring the pink jungle theme. And we got such amazing, ultimately, kind of anthropological information and insight back. We got audio and photos and videos of people talking with their older loved ones about makeup in the 50s and 60s. And it was just so special to hear those stories from people and again, to see how different it was back then. And in some ways still the same, but just to be able to hear that women would treasure one lipstick and use the entire tube of lipstick. (laughs) These types of things were just so insightful. Yeah, no, I can. My grandmother not only had one tube of lipstick, but it also doubled as blush because she would put it on her lips, blot it on a tissue, and then rub it on her cheeks. Always the same color red, as long as I can remember. (laughs) And another funny anecdote that I just loved was that Caitlin's grandmother actually shared this story that she saw hairspray for the first time on her wedding day. And it was so expensive that her sister said, just use a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) So beyond opening the museum, there were other... And I had forgotten about the initiative you actually just spoke of. But beyond that, there were two other big initiatives that I think are independently important in their own right. And I'd love to talk about the undertaking of the digital preservation of Kevin Aquan's journals, which I have to say, I think my jaw actually dropped when I saw those images. How did that project come together? They're so special. They really are. You're going to make me cry again. I, I It was it just is so deeply emotive for, I think, all of us on the team, because it was just such an honor to be able to participate in the preservation of Kevin's personal journals. So in a sense, Generations of Beauty helped give us the confidence that there's more that we need to be doing around the history of beauty beyond staging exhibitions. As with any museum, there is an incredible amount of preservation and restoration work that happens behind the scenes that people who go to the Met, for example, are not seeing day to day. But it is such an important part of the mission of, you know, a historical institution. And so I can't even recall how this came together. But through Rachel and her connections in the makeup artistry space, at some point, we all got looped in on an email thread together 
with Kevin's amazing family, who of course is incredibly passionate about preserving his legacy and just how much he did for makeup artists to really bring them out from behind the chair, behind the makeup trailer or from inside the makeup trailer and really put them as artists in the forefront of makeup and makeup history as a conversation and as a cultural theme. And so I was watching the documentary about Kevin and in the documentary, they referenced to the personal journals and they didn't show too much of it, but kind of knowing that these journals were in existence, it prompted my asking, you know, where are these journals? Do you need any help preserving them? Have they been digitized? Because my main fear, especially, you know, I live in California now, I spent many years in New York, but I'm now in California and with wildfires, you know, it's definitely top of mind for us, making sure that paperwork has a digital backup. And so the family said that they had not digitized it. They weren't even sure where to begin. So we said, you know, we will help you with this. This is during COVID time, obviously. So the logistics of putting this together were quite complex. If it was not during a pandemic, we would have had the journal shipped securely to New York to be photographed page by page. But instead, we worked with a photographer in the Baton Rouge area to drive to the family's home to pick up the journals, to bring it to a local studio to photograph page by page. This ended up creating our digital archive that has 1,600 photographs. We are still in the process of making all of the notes and archiving it. There's a lot of, of course, personal information. There's poems. There is gorgeous artistry that Kevin hand drew or, you know, that he would use stickers from his different travels, personal photographs and Polaroids. It is such an extensive collection. So we're also working with different family members and loved ones to really construct a narrative of these journals. And there's actually still two or three journals that are missing. So we hope to help track those down someday and to be able to add that to the digital archive as well. Thinkers, innovators, experts generating ideas for the business of beauty. Beauty Matter has built its reputation as a must-read resource for beauty industry insiders, delivering future-focused insights and actionable solutions. With the speed of innovation and increased competition in the category, access to the right analysis and intelligence is more critical than ever. Make an investment in yourself and unlock a competitive edge with a subscription to Beauty Matter. Head over to beautymatter.com to check out our content. And as a listener to our podcast, use the code UNLOCK25 for a 25% discount. During this process, what was your favorite thing that you uncovered or like the biggest surprise? Or can't you share because we have to wait for, you know, a book or an exhibition? (laughs) No, I would love to share. I mean, to me, and and by the way, the Makeup Museum mobile app, we did a big, you know, photo dump of images, but we still are doing more. As I mentioned, there are some personal details that need to be kind of redacted for people's privacy, but we'll continue to release more images within the mobile app. One of the things that really struck a chord for me personally was just seeing Kevin's activism To see, I mean, on the back of his journals, for example, he has stickers about vegan beauty and anti-animal cruelty. This is from the 1980s. 
And, you know, I think today, obviously, there's been a huge wave. I don't have to tell you, Kelly, about, you know, right. clean beauty, <laughs> green beauty, blue beauty, like all of these things that are now in the beauty consumer's consciousness. But at the time, I mean, it just felt like he was such an early, not only adopter, but just passionate activist for these types of things. I mean, he has, for example, a newspaper clipping about animal testing in the beauty industry from the 1980s. So it's just, that was really astounding to me. And are you going to be doing more of this archival work? We I are. would imagine the answer is yes. <laughs> yes, definitely. So right now, the, the Pink Jungle exhibition is going to close in February. And because of all of the uncertainty, and you know, New York hasn't quite recovered really at all. I mean, from a tourism perspective, at least. I haven't been back in a few months, but, you know, it's really hard still right now in New York and just across the states. And so we hope to see whether we can stage an exhibition at the end of 2021. Certainly, I expect we'll be back in 2022 with a new exhibition. And we don't know what that will be yet. But in the meantime, we're very busy with doing more archiving and uh, preservation work. I think between working with Erno Laszlo and have actually supported them with filling out some gaps in their archive, we now are you know, talking with other brands that will announce in time about supporting them with archival work as well. That's very cool. The most recent announcement was the publication of a book called Beauty Stories from Around the World in collaboration with L'Oreal that explores overlooked beauty narratives globally, ranging from ancient to modern practices. And the release of the book is obviously very timely, but I think I read that you intend this to be a series and this was just kind of book one. Yes, we have... So many themes that came up through our research and through our collaboration, again, with a global network. The thing that I am most proud of with Beauty Stories is that the Makeup Museum has become a conduit for so many people to tell their stories. And I think that started with Generations of Beauty and, you know, being able to help tell Kevin's story through his journals. And now with Beauty Stories, where we have over 100 images in the book from 30 plus countries. And the essays that are part of the book for this first book, and, and I, you know, will definitely be expanding it over time to be serialized. So this is just volume one. We have uh, writers from Tunisia, Lebanon, Brazil, certainly the United States, also uh, Japan. I mean, the list goes on and on. And it has just been incredible to collaborate with people all over the world because something really special happens where you get out of a kind of Eurocentric frame of mind and you just discover so much that you, you know, I've been in the beauty industry for 10 years. You think you know it all and you don't know it all. <laughs> At all. <laughs> no, you know, it's true. We're in the process of working on some market reports. And we've done one, which was kind of a passion project of mine on, on Japan. And we always start with the history, the beauty history of an area or a country first. And people always find it really strange. And I'm like, no, how can you understand how people think about beauty today if you don't understand how beauty is ingrained culturally? 
through history. It's always where we start. You know, I'm a bit of a geek when it comes to that. It's always my favorite part. So I love this book. And I also think the conversations and challenging perceptions of beauty is so important. The images of the book are powerful, and collectively, it really makes an impact. What are your hopes for the book in terms of what people do with it, other than it looking great on a bookshelf? It does look great on a bookshelf. <laughs> it's beautiful. My hope is that it just continues to open people's minds to the possibilities and the beauty that can be created when we work together across different cultures, different narratives. For example, we have an essay by Khalil Gorda that covers coal eyeliner. And obviously eyeliner is one of those things that in a way we think of to be quite pedestrian today. Like everyone wears eyeliner, right? But then when you look back historically, I mean, it has such a religious and spiritual source to it. And so to have someone who is from the Arab world be able to tell that story and to be able to talk about men's use of eyeliner at the mosque and how this is one of my just favorite insights from the book. We couldn't find any English language sources of this, but apparently mm -hmm. in some parts of Africa where the stibnit mineral and stone is just unable to be mined, instead they use the bowels of a certain type of fish Oh my to God. create eyeliner, to create coal. So, I mean, there's these types of ingredient stories, tradition mm. stories that I think are so critical to have in our collective narrative. And I'm just so excited for people to see that and for that to stimulate more stories and, and more exchange. No, I agree because I think as an industry, we're so obsessed with looking forward and what's next and predicting trends that, you know, the fashion industry is always inspired by the past. I think on the wellness side, you know, with traditional, this look to sort of traditional remedies, it happens. But I think collectively, we don't as an industry look back for inspiration as much as say the fashion industry does. And I think a great example of that is coming from the Pink Jungle exhibition, too, where we had so many industry visitors. We even had some brands that came and did like group tours for kind of a socially distanced offsite. And one of the key takeaways from the live walkthrough of the museum is the packaging and just seeing, you know, for example, Bird in Hand by Salvador Dali with Elgin that's on display at the museum. The creativity of these compacts that were created that were sustainable. I mean, people would have them for a lifetime. I think that that has been very inspiring for people. And so I do think that increasingly, especially now with the Makeup Museum as an institution, really evangelizing, looking backwards and looking forwards in some ways, but looking backwards to really understand the history and how we grow from that has been very inspiring for the industry itself. If you had to have people take one thing away from the work at the Makeup Museum, what would you want that to be? Legacy. To me, it's all about, you know, when you're developing a new product, what will the legacy of that product be? When you're developing a new advertising campaign, what will people in 20, 30 years think about that when it's on display at a museum, perhaps? And so I think that when we think about beauty through the lens of the legacies that have been and kind of our reactions to that, and then the legacy that we leave through either the products that we develop or how we use makeup on ourselves, 
that is such a big part of beauty that doesn't get talked about as often. It's interesting that you say that because what popped into my mind is having been doing kind of branding in the beauty space for a couple decades, you know, there was this shift over, we'll say the last 10 years, but it wasn't quite that much. Brands, when you would get a creative brief from them, they all wanted to create like the next iconic brand and you'd get references. I mean, there's always kind of the Apple reference or Chanel or, you know, but iconic brands. And I feel that we kind of fast-tracked in the D2C moment of these brands that weren't really focused on building legacy as much as kind of speed to market and disruption. And disruption happens for a moment. It's a moment in time that either becomes kind of the new normal or it was just disruptive, period. I really think that one of the byproducts of kind of the past year is people are slowing down. And I also think that people have a new respect for the value in traditional branding because traditional branding in many ways had an easier time navigating the past year because they knew who they were. They knew what they stood for. So it's very interesting that that you use the word legacy because I feel like I don't know in the past five years, I can't say that there's kind of a legacy brand or a legacy brand in the making that kind of pops into my mind. Yeah, I think that's really astute. Yeah, I mean, there's a certain care with so many decisions that have to go into creating a brand or creating a product that if it's not done really with that love and longevity in mind, and also at the end of the day, thinking about what the consumer or the user really needs and values something will get lost along the way. And then you miss that opportunity to create a really iconic brand. So I think it's almost perhaps may seem counterintuitive, but I think that when there's a really strong focus on legacy and history and what the meaning of this product is, it can actually really generate something that has that longevity, even if it doesn't, you know, have that immediate buzz perhaps of slapping a different photo on the packaging. Yeah. It's kind of interesting also thinking of uh, the makeup museum through sort of the lens of decades, what sort of the last decade would even be. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's funny because <laughs> 2010, it doesn't feel like that long ago. And yet when you look back at some of the trends, I mean, Kardashians, of course. Yeah. I hope it's not every podcast that the Kardashians can mention, but they yeah. had a, huge, <laughs> a very huge impact on beauty culture. Yeah. And so I think that will be absolutely fascinating to explore in time. I'm very curious what the 20s will be. We've had obviously quite a wild ride to start. But, you know, there's going to be a lot of stories to tell around, yeah, how people turned toward wellness and skincare, Mm -hmm. certainly. And but then also, you know, the eyes, all about the eyes right now. Yeah. But, you know, I also think when we think of like the last 10 years, or the last decade, yes, Kardashians, influencers, social media have all changed our very existence and and how we run beauty businesses. But one of the things that I love, and in my opinion, it doesn't really get as much attention from the beauty industry at large, are all these beauty subcultures that live online. And yeah, some of them are really, really weird, but they're so 
beautiful at the same time. It's just a different kind of beauty. And these people are just as passionate as sort of traditional influencers, but they now can find each other online. And Dazed Beauty does such an amazing job of sort of capturing these groups. I think that is in some ways, just as important as kind of that Kardashian influencer moment. Yeah. Are there any examples that you have top of mind? Yeah. So there's definitely kind of like the e-girls of TikTok. The interesting thing about kind of e-girls is that it's very performative for them. They kind of do these makeup looks and they do it for the sake of content creation. They don't necessarily walk around like that, but some of them do. And then there's sort of like the modern day interpretation of club kids, but they don't go out and drink the way we used to. You know, if you look deep enough, they exist. Or even, you know, the impact of drag culture on the beauty industry, which we kind of take for granted, but now has become really mainstream. And so I love all of those narratives as well, that kind of they're kind of in the the background of the beauty industry, but those people use a lot of makeup and skincare and, you know, hair care products. They're just, it's just not mainstream. But now there's a place for them in this world that is increasingly diverse. So I think that's kind of cool too. I agree. And I think it's also, you know, as a beauty nerd, it's so neat to be able to see the process because- yeah. Now in a way that, I mean, you think about 1950s, right, where just to juxtapose that no one wanted to be known as wearing makeup, right? It was like, obviously, you wore it and you had to wear it, but you didn't talk about your process. And here you have people who are in front of the camera, totally barefaced, and then doing that transformation. So I think the ability to see those transformations is really profound. And we take it for granted, I think, right now, because there is so much content But being able to see that transition is quite different from a beauty historical perspective. Yeah. So obviously all this work comes at a cost. So how can people get involved to to keep the good work you're doing going? First of all, pre-order or purchase the book, Beauty Stories from Around the World. We have it right now for sale on our website. So it's makeupmuseum.com. And then, you know, once we have the new exhibition, uh, whenever we announce that, please come in and stop by and get a ticket. And also for any brand listeners who are tuning in, if you have any interest in archival services, we would love to talk with you. We'd love to work with you. It's very win-win. We'd love to help you get all of your archives in order so it can be leveraged for product development and brands exercises and so much more. So those are all great ways to get in touch and to help us continue doing the work that we're doing. I'm so excited that we were able to do this. We tried to do it sort of, this is our second season. We launched our first podcast season in March, which means it didn't really get launched properly. We just kind of threw it out into the world, but we're nurturing it. We're, we're doing a retroactive nurturing launch, but we're bullish. So we went ahead with season two. So we're happy that we were able to make it work this time. Thank you so much, Kelly. I can't wait for the next time we get to chat and hopefully to see one another in person. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, please keep us in the loop on everything you're doing because it's definitely important work. Thank you so much. Thanks, Doreen. For Doreen, it's a matter of legacy. So much of the beauty industry is laser-focused on newness and looking forward to try to predict the next trend. 
The work of the Makeup Museum creates a space to slow down, look back, and learn. Focused on exploring the history of beauty and its ongoing impact on society, with a dedication of empowering all people to learn about and have fun with beauty. The Makeup Museum plays an important role in the beauty landscape. Most beauty history books gloss over thousands of years of history between ancient Egypt and the Renaissance, with limited attention paid to the important beauty rituals of Black people, Indigenous people, and people of color. The Makeup Museum is dedicated to documenting the beauty traditions of all cultures, while enabling conversations that challenge the perception of beauty. So in the end, it's a matter of legacy. And that's what matters. I'm Kelly Kovac. Hi, I'm Doreen. To me, what matters is legacy. In the beauty industry, we spend so much time thinking about the future, which products we should be launching next, and the latest, hottest trends. But we often don't spend a lot of time thinking about where we've been and the history and the iconic products of the past. But what's interesting is that when we look back, we often may be inspired for the future. And so that's why legacy it really is important to me. It's a Matter Of is a production of Beauty Matter LLC. You can find more content and insights on beautymatter.com and follow us on social media at Beauty Matter Official. This is Mouth Media Network, the business of being heard.